As I've already mentioned this morning, we are grateful here at the church at Lock the Springs to be a part of this larger family of churches. Eight congregations spread throughout um, Davidson County, Williamson County, all unique all with unique pastors and staffs and congregations, all in unique neighborhoods. The way that day-to-day ministry looks in all of our different congregations is incredibly different because we love and serve and are loved and served by very different communities. At the same time, we all share a uh, main central mission and vision. The idea being, we all want to be able to pick up the oar and know that we're rowing in the same direction. One way that we keep that connection is Monday afternoons, all eight pastors get together. It's my favorite time of the work week. It's, it's two hours every single Monday, and we get together, and we, we talk about sports, and we talk about books, and we make fun of one another, and we laugh, and we cry, and we pray. We spend time sharing ideas about scripture passages and sermons that we're preaching. It's an incredible opportunity to be a sounding board for one another. And especially for a pastor like me, because I walk into that room every Monday afternoon with a bunch of pastors that are way more experienced than I am. So it's this beautiful opportunity for me to learn from them every single week. Sometimes during that time that we're together, um, phrases designed to be encouraging may go the opposite direction. Every once in a while, you'll be in that room and we'll be talking about a, a specific scripture passage or a specific sermon that's being preached. And, and one of the more experienced pastors might say something to the effect of, man, if you can't preach this passage, you're in the long, wrong line of work. <sighs> um, I wish I could receive that as an encouragement but oftentimes, I'm the one that's in the corner thinking, oh, but, but, what if, but what if I can't preach this passage? What does that say about me? My daughter has been an, a ballerina for 11 of her 14 years of life. Yesterday, she had her big spring performance, super cool theater downtown. Really cool moment. She performed a piece that she had been practicing and rehearsing uh, with her dance company for the last four months. If yesterday I said to her before she left the house to prepare to perform, baby, you've been a ballerina for 11 years. You've been practicing this piece for four months. Don't worry, there's no way you can mess it up. It adds a pressure It's called a Freudian hydraulic. It's this psychologic pressure that can be added and will then produce a reaction of unpredictable magnitude. 
Over the last several months, we've been walking through the writings of John. Over the last few weeks, specifically, his first letter, 1 John. Starting at the end and moving backwards toward the beginning, the idea being we wanted to start with kind of his purpose statement there in 1 John chapter 5, where John says, the reason I wrote this letter is so those of you that, can, that believe can have assurance in your salvation. So those that believe can know that you know that you know that your name is written in the book of life. That know that you know that you know that you will spend eternity with your creator. We then spent the last three weeks kind of unpacking what John says about that. And spoiler alert, it's all about love. Starts with with God's love. We are so filled with his love that we are compelled to love others. We love because we are loved, right? We love because God first loved us. And then last week we talked about that, that love that fills us to the point of overwhelming us. The dam breaks and it pours out into our communities and our neighborhoods and our relationships. We are compelled to love in action. What that looks like in practical application every day in our lives. You can sum up the last few weeks of our journey through 1 John probably in one sentence. Yes, you can know that you are saved. And it's very simple. It's by the way you love. For many of us, that can be a Freudian hydraulic. For many of us, that can add pressure. For many of us, we're the ones sitting in the corner of that room thinking, um, but, but what does that mean if my life doesn't look like love every day? It can lead to a dejection of sorts. Well, as we continue to work our way backwards through this letter, this morning we're going to be in the first couple of verses of 1 John chapter 2. And in these verses, those of us that feel that tension, John has some good news and John has some bad news. On that note, I would love it if you would stand with me this morning as we read God's word. God, through the hand of John, writes in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours but for those of the whole world. Lord, we are grateful to hold in our hands the living, breathing word of the living, breathing God. Do not ever let us take that for granted. We ask, speak now, for your servants are listening. Amen. Y'all may be seated. My little children, I love that John uses that kind of term of endearment several times through this letter. First of all, it it reminds the people he's writing to 
of kind of his authority in the faith, his authority as one that, that literally walked with Jesus Christ, his authority as a disciple, not just in the sense of the word that he was a disciple with Jesus, but he is discipling these churches in their faith. But it also is this incredibly affectionate term. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. Whew. So that you may not sin. That seems like a bit of an overreach, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's a lot. We, we have spoken in this room many times uh, about what our lives often look like as, as fallen and broken people living in a fallen and broken world. The kind of inevitability... Because we are not God, we are not Christ, we do not live these uh, perfect lives like Christ modeled for us of what that kind of looks like in our lives. You know, sin in in very general terms is is our desire to be independent from God. Frankly, our our desire to be equal with or God himself. Tim Keller says that, that, that sin in general is breaking the fundamental rule of the Bible, which is there is a God and you are not him. Now, that fundamental sin in our lives can manifest itself tangibly in infinite ways. Some incredibly well-known and largely agreed upon. You know, the, the violation of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal. I think most of us will kind of nod our heads and agree that's frowned upon. Don't murder. Don't, don't do that thing. We're all kind of okay with that, but, but for many of us, that, that fundamental sin in our lives can manifest itself in much more subtle ways. You know, the sin of idolatry, and we talk about that a lot, and everybody's like, okay, I get it, I'm not supposed to idolize um, money or success or stuff. You, no, you're not. You're also not supposed to idolize family and children. You're not supposed to idolize any one person that's mentoring you or discipling you in your life. All of those are good things. Be in discipleship relationships. Your families are great. When they come between you and God, that's idolatry. The sin of pride. Most of us will nod our heads at that. What about when we have pride in in our own good works? Pride in the way we love and serve others. Personal pride in our ministry, taking the glory on ourselves instead of reflecting God's glory into the world. When John writes to us, little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, it can seem pretty overwhelming. When we think about all the ways sin can show up in our lives. But this is not original thought to John. This is not a new concept when he was writing. You know, Matthew 16, Jesus said to John and the 11 other disciples at the time, this is what it looks like to follow me. Take up your cross, deny yourself. Your life will be a new life. Leave leave your old life behind. 
John was there and even wrote about in the 8th chapter of his gospel the time that the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus that they had trapped in adultery. Jesus, what are we going to do about this woman? Are we going to stone her like the, like the Jewish law says? We all love that story. Because we can picture these men standing around this woman that had been accused of adultery. Her life and her sin laid bare for the entire world to see, all holding rocks. And Jesus famously looks at the men and says, Those of you that have no sin, that guy, you throw the first stone. Dud, 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 dud. They all drop their rocks. They all walk away because we all recognize we're carrying some sort of sin in our life. The one person that stood in a position to condemn that woman, Jesus himself, he came to save, not to condemn. You're not defined by your sin, Jesus says. That is not your identity, not in what you did. We love that story, but we tend to stop right before the end. Now go, he says, and sin no more. That seems a little judgy, doesn't it? Like this idea, this picture of, of, of grace, this picture of forgiveness. This woman, woman standing there, it's just her and Jesus. And Jesus saying, it's okay. I'm not here to condemn you. You're not condemned. Just don't ever do that thing again. Go and sin no more. It is not a new concept in First John. Here's the thing, the unmitigated, unfathomable, perfect, eternal grace of Jesus Christ demands change. That's real. It demands a new life. That's scriptural. Not because we are trying to earn it. Not because we could ever repay it. But because we live out of that unmitigated grace. Marty, this morning, when, when he opened the service with, with prayer, he read a passage out of Romans chapter 5. Romans is kind of the masterwork of the gospel written by God through the hands of Paul. He builds this incredible airtight case for salvation by grace, through faith, period. Romans 1 and 2, Paul tells us that that you can't do it on your own. You can't get there. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter how many times you've sat in these church pews. 
then Paul brings us the good news, the good news, Romans 3, 4, and 5. You know, kind of crescendo where, where Marty read for us this morning, where Paul tells us it's okay, you can't get there, but, but Christ did it for you. Through his death and resurrection, you have the opportunity to receive this absolute free gift of grace. And it's through receiving that grace in faith that you are saved once and for all. If we add anything to that, it's blasphemy. Faith and. It does not matter what comes after that and. It's blasphemy. Romans 1 and 2, Romans 3, 4, and 5. That leads us to Romans 6. Romans 6, as Paul was apt to do, begins with this question. Paul would put himself in the place of his readers, ask the question, and then answer it. The question at the beginning of Romans 6 was, okay, that's awesome. I'm so excited about grace by faith alone. So that means I can do whatever I want, right? As a matter of fact... What that really means is if, if grace is a good thing and, and my sin is answered by grace, more sin, more grace. This plan is bulletproof. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the way it works. Because you see, when you, when you receive that free gift of grace, when you have Christ in your life, you're crucified with him. You're buried with him. And then you're resurrected with him to walk in a brand new life. That's Romans 6, 4 through 8. That's what baptism symbolizes. Death and burial with Jesus Christ and then resurrection to live a brand new life because of Christ in your life. It's called the process of sanctification. As we have said in this place a thousand times, sanctification is not obligatory, it is inevitable. This is, the, this is one of these litmus tests that John is talking to us about. It's one of these litmus tests that Paul talks to us about time and time again. When Christ is in your life, you cannot help but for your heart and your mind and your actions to begin to conform to His. Your life looks different. I'm writing you these things, John says... So that you won't sin anymore. When Jesus told that woman, you're not condemned, now go and sin no more. We have no idea what happened next. She's never mentioned again in the scripture. We don't know where she went. We don't know what she did. We don't know what her life looked like. Now, if I put myself in that place... When I read John chapter 8 and I imagine her standing in the middle of a circle, men holding rocks, ready to execute her at any moment, and then getting an absolute and eternal reprieve from Jesus Christ himself. I imagine the impact of that moment. And it is not hard to imagine how her life might have changed from that point. It is not hard to imagine 
that she walked away from that moment a different person. That she lived a new life. I don't have to imagine that she fell short of living up to Jesus' command to go and sin no more. Her life was different. She did not live a sin-free day after that. The good news is forgiveness is not a one-time offer. We hear a lot about second chances. Grace and forgiveness is not a second chance. It's not, it's not this moment where Jesus looks at us and says, all right, Hannah, you've mucked it up pretty bad up to this point. Your, your life really doesn't look like what I would have hoped. But in this moment, I, I am offering you This free gift of grace, I'm offering you absolute forgiveness. I'm cleaning the slate. I'm giving you a second chance. Don't mess it up this time. That's not grace. That's not forgiveness. The bad news is, as we walk into that, it brings us back into this place of tension. Like when we, when we think about the evidence of Christ in our life as the way we love people, we recognize there are lots of days that my life doesn't look like that. It brings on these feelings of guilt, these feelings of shame. Romans doesn't end in Romans chapter 6. Because after Paul talks about sanctification, after Paul talks about being buried with Christ and resurrected with him and our our lives looking different, he goes into chapter 7 where he gives us this really personal window into the desperation that we all feel. See, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says... I I know all that. I believe all that. I teach all of that. And yet, so often my life doesn't look like that. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I, I just can't do it. I know what I'm not supposed to do, but that thing, that thing over there, I just keep doing it. It is just utter desperation in Romans chapter 7. The good news is Romans doesn't end there either. It goes to Romans chapter 8. No condemnation, no separation. It's the exact reason that 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 doesn't end with the phrase. I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. John goes on. But if anyone does sin, just in case, for argument's sake, let's say you sin again. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only our sins, but also for those of the entire world. 
We have an advocate in Jesus Christ. That, that word advocate in many languages, dare I say most languages, it's the, it's the exact word for lawyer. Same word. Lawyers get kind of a bad rap. I, I was one for a long time, so I've heard every single joke. I, I know that there are a lot of lawyers that come by that reputation, honestly, but they serve an incredibly vital function in our society. Do you know why the certification examination to be an attorney is called the bar exam? The word doesn't stand for anything. It's not an acronym. It's also not random. It takes its name from the physical barrier in a courtroom. If you've ever been in a courtroom in America, normally they have like a physical rail with kind of the swinging door behind which the public is allowed to, to, to sit. The only people that are allowed to pass that barrier, to pass the bar, are the accused and those that are allowed to represent them. When you pass the bar, it gives you the ability to stand in the stead of someone else and represent them in front of the judge. We have our advocate in Jesus Christ, the one that paid the price, the one that passed the test, that allowed him to cross over that barrier and represent us to speak for us in front of God the Father. In Jesus Christ, we have the atoning sacrifice. That word atonement, it's one of these big church words. It's actually a pretty simple concept. We see it time and time again throughout the Old Testament where, where those that were called had to make an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice of atonement for their sins. Then they would sin again, they would have to make another one, and another one, and another one, and so on, and so forth. Jesus Christ became that atoning sacrifice. Now and forever for all of us. We talk about the free gift of grace, and it is just that. Absolutely 100% free for us. It was not free. A price had to be paid, and Jesus Christ paid it. He became that atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we do not have to live in the desperation of Romans chapter 7. So that we do reach Romans chapter 8. So that there is no condemnation. There is no longer separation. There is nothing you can do, have done, or will do that could ever separate you from the love of your creator. It is because of the righteousness that we find in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Which brings us back to this tension. This tension between sanctification and living in absolute grace. This tension between loving 
in action in our lives and not having to earn our salvation. That's why we are constantly reminded by John. That's why we're constantly reminded by Paul. That's why we're constantly reminded by Christ himself that that new life that we live is lived out of grace, is lived because of grace, not in order to receive grace. There was an article in the New York Times written just a couple of months ago, the beginning of April, about this recent phenomenon in the New York public library system. Between October 6th, 2021 and the end of February 2022, five months, over 90,000 overdue books were returned to the New York Public Library, many of which decades old. Some go as far back as the 1950s. A lot were mailed in with notes. I, I I've had this book, I've had these books for 50 years. They helped me get through nursing school. They helped me raise every one of their kids. Some mailed to places that aren't even libraries anymore. Shopping centers would get these, these boxes of books and have to find the closest library to turn them in because the library they were checked out from closed in the 80s. Do you know why that suddenly happened? People began to return overdue library books at an overwhelming rate because on October 1st, 2021, the New York library stopped charging overdue fines and forgave every past due balance. You see, people had been holding on to these books for years, sometimes decades Because they were racked with guilt and with shame and they didn't know what to do. How do I walk into a library with a book I've had since 1964? But when the penalties penalties were literally erased, they were freed from that guilt. They were freed from that shame. They were free to give it all back. They were free to act. Sanctification is not a condition of the gospel. It's the fruit of it. Grace is not the opposite of righteousness. It's the foundation of it. We sit in this place today forgiven. Past sins, present sins, future sins, wiped clean. Covered in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Y'all, that is mind-blowing. When we receive and embrace that knowledge, it is impossible not to live from it. A few moments ago, we sung about the table. 
There's no condemnation at the table. And there's a place for you. This this morning, as a church family, we get to celebrate that we have an advocate. We get to celebrate the eternal, perfect, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we get to celebrate together our place at that table. As Davina leads the worship team back on the platform, I want us to take just a moment. Put both feet on the ground. Not because it's a holy posture, but because hopefully it will prevent your legs from going to sleep. Bow your head and close your eyes. Not because you can't speak to your creator with your eyes open. But hopefully in this moment, it will avoid all distractions. Take just a moment. To receive. The free, unmitigated, unfathomable, perfect, and eternal grace of Jesus Christ. recognize that because of his atoning sacrifice your identity is not in what you have done those chains been broken your worth your value found in him allow yourself to be washed in his blood sacrifice and in his righteousness may we always live from the foundation of that grace